just as before we get started, I just want to define what sort of grassroots football is. So for me, I suppose it's anything that's um, your typical community club. It's not just kids. I, I see grassroots football as all the way up. Um, you know, when I play over 45s every now and again, I believe I'm in the grassroots football space as well. Um, so, you know, it's sort of that pillar where it's, it's club-based. Uh, there is some sort of training. There is some sort of games, regular and scheduled. Uh, and so that's what I'm sort of defining grassroots football. And the, the title is uh, Rethinking Grassroots Football. Uh, some of you may be thinking, why? You know, why, why do we need to rethink it? Uh, don't we have huge numbers of kids playing? Don't we have uh, – aren't the numbers going up every year? Um, and uh, hopefully I'll go through some of those reasons. But, you know, if we only measure success through numbers coming in through the door, we miss the point of, of grassroots football, I think. And um, we'll look at that as well. Um, there's, there's, I think there's some, there's some issues there. I think those issues, as Debbie said, are covering off uh, or I suppose affecting national teams, even if you want to go up that far. Uh, but more importantly, the health of our kids is at, is at stake. Um, you know, and how many kids are lost to physical activity and, and football because of these issues. So one of the reasons I, I think we should look at relook at grassroots football is the declining physical activity levels. You know, we're, we're classed as a lucky country. We uh, obviously pre-COVID nineteen, with uh, you can, it's pretty well economically safe. Um, you know, there's lots of opportunity to get outside. There's lots of spaces. Um, that we're, we're pretty lucky, really. But are we the lucky country? When you consider a couple of recent reports in terms of physical activity, Australia is ranked pretty poorly. Um, maybe that prosperity is actually contributing to this. So we looked at, um, you know, ranked 32 out of 49 countries there and a D minus. And that, that report is done every two years. So 2016, 2014, we also had a D minus. Um, one of the things that's starting to come out now, though, that's, that's concerning is, is a loss of muscular strength through the kids. Uh, and another second report, which is a bit worrying, uh, we're ranked, sorry, it's behind the video there, ranked 140 out of 146 countries that were surveyed for our physical activity levels. So that's kids from 5 to 17 years of age. So for me, it's uh, pretty, pretty scary stuff. And one of the reasons, obviously, it's not the, the 80s and 90s anymore when a, a few of us grew up uh, or were growing up. You know, once players uh, or parents and, and people plan their weeks around sport, now sport needs to fit into the family's week. Uh, so it's a, a bit of a difference. And only 19% of Australians aged 5 to 7 are meeting the recommended guidelines of 60 minutes of physical activity each day uh, with the same group spending on average two to three hours on screens. You know, and some, some kids, obviously, a hell of a lot more than that. And even scarier, I think, that a study revealed the least fit child from a class of 30 in 1998 would be one of the five fittest children in the same class today. So the least fit child from 1998, that's literally 20-odd years ago, would be one of the five fittest now. And another study, average child in 2015 would finish 250 metres behind the average child in the 80s. 
And this is just through play. You know, we've, we've lost that play aspect. So these things are coming up. So just imagine what's the effect is that having on players coming through our talented player systems, international teams, when we're thinking of a kid, the least fit kid 20 years ago is now one of the five fittest. It's uh, scary stuff for me. And I think that's a, a reason in itself to rethink grassroots football. The other area, and this may be a controversial statement given that we're overflowing and we don't have enough uh, grounds for, for many of our clubs, but this is a statement that applies to a number of European countries. So in Europe, grassroots, grassroots club football is dying. And part of the reason for that is the rise of social football. So play when and where you want, no commitment. Uh, there's a couple of major apps where you can just go on, find out where there's a game, go and play. So people are wanting football to fit into their busy schedules, into their lives. So if you have the social pillar, the next pillar along the traditional grassroots, that's really dying in some European countries. And then their federations and their national federations are, are really starting to struggle. You know, they just don't have the players anymore. Social football's been taken over by entrepreneurs. So some of the possible reasons for, for player dropout, and, you know, they, they apply to different players all over. Um, one of the main ones, I think, is everything is overstructured. Everything is adult-led. There's, there's no play more anymore. There's no free time or unstructured time for kids. And if, uh, I, you know, we, we constantly hear kids are on board, but we don't let them then get past that and create new games for themselves. And I'll, I'll talk touch on that point a, a bit later on. We either jump in and tell them what to do or we put a screen in front of them. So everything is structured these days. Pressure to win. Right at grassroots level, I've seen some amazing things. I'm out there most Saturdays. Uh, I've got a son that plays in grassroots, so I see these things week in, week out. Uh, pressure to win from coaches, from parents, and the higher up you go, it's even worse. You know, I started coaching the NPL in Victoria two years ago and took over a team that was scared to lose. They would rather boot the ball out than, than try something. And these are 15-year-old kids. So there's pressure to play like professionals to get the win, uh, which, which limits their, their ability to develop. Uh, the other thing, specialising too soon, and we'll, we'll touch on that soon as well. Um, you know, kids are, are now doing their club training, doing academy trainings, they're doing trainings left, right, and centre, and that's the only sport they're doing. Major risk of burnout, both mentally and physically. Kids are being written off too early. Uh, we've got rules in place in the in the A League where they've got to be signed up or they get let go. Some of the A League clubs want to hang on to these players for longer to give them greater chance, but they don't. They can't because of the, the registrations and the rules. Often we see this in some clubs. You know, the, the top teams get, get the good coach and the rest of them uh, get the hand-me-downs or uh, they get forgotten about. I know there's another number of good clubs out there that look after all their players, but you know these are just some of the reasons. We've all seen this before, okay, and we'll touch on that again soon. And maybe you know we're forgetting why the kids play sport. We need to listen to their voice a hell of a lot more. And we've touched on that one as well. So, but for me, it's just that everything is overstructured. Even, you know, I'm, I'm coach education manager and the stuff I see from coaches is too much coach-led, 
too much instruction. Uh, often I reckon let, let's just let them play. Obviously we need to help them, but yeah, let, let's let them play. Some of the things I see going around the community football are under 10s football, and these are from well-meaning parents, well-meaning coaches. You know, in this graphic here, the play is all up this end, and the coach and, and the parents or whoever it is is telling this red player here, the striker, to stay up there because if they win it, they're just going to boot it down to this player so he can score, so they can win the match. Uh, what does this player do if the play's mostly up here? He gets really bored. Or what are these players? Every time they get it, they're told to just smash it, just kick it. Uh, so, again, think about the effect on the kids. Or the converse, what you see is the two defenders told to stay at the back, down by the goal. And uh, often you'll see these guys and the goalkeeper start to have a chat and the ball's coming and the parents and the coach are screaming and they're wondering what the hell's going on. Uh, think about the experience for these players who have been told to just stand there. Uh, it's not a great experience and they're no, you know, they, they leave the sport and we don't blame them. So we did, there is plenty of research around out there why, uh, why kids drop out and this is a little bit longer video but I think it's a, a very relevant one. We are going to look at the opposite, the things that put them off. Well, some of these may surprise you too. Here they come. Children drop out of sport for five main reasons. One, when they don't feel confident and competent. Two, when it becomes too serious. Three, when the main focus is on winning. Four, when coaches have favorites. And five, when parents and coaches are pushy. Let's go one by one again. First, when children don't feel confident and competent, they are at a higher risk of dropping out. If the activities we do with the kids don't give them sufficient levels of confidence and competence, we are going to struggle to keep them engaged and happy. From that point to dropping out, there's only a very small step. Second, children say that when sport becomes too serious, they don't like it. This is another reminder that sport belongs to the children and that playing is their main motivation. Pep Guardiola, the legendary football coach, he says that young children should do three things. Play, play, and play. So coaches would make the most of the children's desire to play. The third reason why children drop out is an excessive focus on winning. It's not that children don't care about winning, but study after study shows that is not the most important thing for them. Adults who are fixated with keeping score and the win-loss record are actually doing children a disservice and increasing their chances of dropping out. Fourth on the list, children don't like when coaches have favorites. Every child deserves our full attention, no matter how skillful or gifted. Coaches must ensure that all children feel valued. Coaches, please make sure to learn every child's name and say hello when they come in 
And please, please, please give every child a little bit of your time in every session. Finally, the last major dropout factor identified by children is pushy parents and coaches. Forcing children to train more than they want to is a big no. Stopping them from doing other things they like, such as spending time with friends, watching TV or doing homework, has a big impact on dropout rates. Even for children who move into the performance pathway, we should be careful not to expect too much too early. Our attitudes influence what they make out of it. If we value winning, they will fixate on that. If we value learning, friendship and enjoyment, just remember, children are not many adults. But if you don't believe me, please listen to the kids on this video. Something went in my eye. <laughs> Testing. Getting my hands in the footy and nervous being with my mates. I like, like having fun. Just being around your friends and enjoying yourself. I like being outdoors. It just makes me happy. Having fun, I think, is the main thing. Because it doesn't really matter if you win, at least you get to play. And if you lose, it's not the end of the world. I don't like it when people get yelled at or when I get yelled at. It's pretty embarrassing when someone's shouting at you halfway through the game. Watch your passes. You're so bad. You're not that great. It's mainly how they say it. It makes me feel like I'm useless and I can't do anything. I saw a father bashing his own son. And all the parents were arguing with each other. It was really stressful and it made me just not feel good at all. I stopped because I was being yelled at and it just wasn't any fun anymore. He's not put on this earth to, to be bashed, to be stripped of his confidence. Yeah, they don't understand that I'm doing my best, so... Just stop, stop. Could you please, like, stop yelling at me on the court because it's making me feel like I can't do it anymore. If they've got to yell out, they could say like, something encouraging. Things like, good job or good pass. You're good, just keep trying and you'll get there. Oh, that was a great job. You're doing great. Try as hard as you can. When I hear people yelling from the sidelines, I wanted them to say good job. We're just kids. Just let us have fun, let us do what we love. We're just here to have fun. Just let kids be kids. Uh, pretty pretty powerful there from the from the kids. Um, Debbie, it might be a good time to stop there. Is there any any questions so far? Joey Peters just put up a question. Joey, do you want to put your question out loud? Hi Deb. Hi Sean. Doing uh, yeah, loving this presentation. Wonderful references. I was just um, listening to those kids. Uh, all, through all these videos and I'm, I'm just thinking to myself, we really don't ask the kids enough, do we? Um, whether it's from a training session right through to, you know, um, developing curriculums, it's, um, it's obvious that, yeah, we're, we're kind of missing something here and it's getting a voice from the actual participants, particularly when it comes to kids' sports. So it's more of a statement, um, but I guess uh, something for us all to think about. Are we asking the kids enough? 
Yeah, and it's uh, it's an important factor because, um, you know, if we want to develop the motivation, people ask often, how do I motivate my kids? Well, uh, without going into de- huge detail, there's a continuum of motivation. There's in- extrinsic where we give them rewards or punishment all the way up to the other end where it's it's intrinsic motivation and they do it because they love it, uh, just for the inherent joy of, of playing the sport. The, there's huge benefits if we can develop that inherent or that intrinsic motivation. Um, you know, they, they'll stick at it longer, um, performance goes up, relationships are better, they're happier. Uh, so there's huge benefits there. And one of the ways of developing an environment that, that grows that intrinsic motivation is through um, autonomy, giving the, the kids choice. Uh, so asking them, giving them part of the session where they can choose which activity it is. Uh, you can even have it between two different activities. Do you want to do activity A or activity B? Um, just having that choice and that control voice uh, does help. So I think that's a good point. So I think at, at this point in the presentation, I just want to relook at the, you know, we've looked at the issues, the, the reasons why kids are dropping out, um, and just want to refocus on what, what, what is the purpose of grassroots football? Why, why do we have it? Uh, if, if you go to the FIFA, you know, grassroots football is football for all. Um, and I'll let you read through that. But the, the key words that struck out for me there are playing and football. Obviously, I've got them in bold. Uh, exchanges and sharing human values. So about relatedness, playing our wonderful game. Uh, and as we heard from the kids, it's about enjoyment and fun. Uh, I, I stopped playing over 45s football because some of the people there were we're taking it too seriously. You know, I wanted to go out and have a bit of fun. There's too many people there out to have a kick, you know, kick others or, or just, they're trying to play their World Cups. And um, so I dropped out. You know, it, it, I'm old and, and decrepit, but um, the exact same reason a kid drops out, I dropped out from playing because of that. I wanted to add on to these things from FIFA and um, maybe just put these things here. So focus on the well-being enjoyment of the children or the players. So, you know, grassroots is all the way up. The team coach and the team manager are the people responsible for all of those things, the quality of experience. Yes, the registration system, you know, if it's frustrating at the beginning of the year to register, that's difficult. Yes, the competition system, if that's difficult to use and it's not great, but at the end of the day, the relationships, the face of the sport are you guys the coach and the team manager. So you guys are the ones that can drive this change. And, and the, the federations and, and FFA, they can support that. Um, you know, so don't, all I'd say is change starts with you. Don't, don't wait around for some like us at FFA to, to make this change. Some of the responsibilities, um, obviously encouraging young people to be involved in a variety of sports, and I'll touch on this soon. Uh, positive Support, keep winning in perspective. Now, I, I coach my young kids and stuff, and I send the kids out to try and win every single game. I don't go, don't say go, don't go out there and try and win. Um, but I keep winning in perspective. That's not what I'm focusing on. And if they had fun and they learned something new, then fantastic. Right? But the kids, the, the, the game of football is, is a competition between two teams to try and win. So the kids will go out and try and win no matter what. You don't have to focus on that. Uh, and as I said, be patient, emphasize skill development, allow kids to play a variety of playing positions. 
Now, again, I had examples of a kid who came to me who was a fantastic striker. He was lightning quick. He'd been in a team where they just pumped it over the top. He went through and scored 50-odd goals. He came into our team, and so I put him at left back because he struggled with his left foot. He struggled to defend, and he wasn't great in tight spaces. So I played him at left back, midfield, before I then moved him up, and he's a much better player for it, I think. Um, Don't force the kids into one sport or specialise too early, and I'll, I'll touch on this again soon, and make the focus on learning development and put those participants' needs first. So that's your responsibilities as coaches, as coaches all over. And if we can achieve some of these things, we might keep kids in sport and change those report cards that we saw at the, at the start. Some of the things we find is, uh, you know, if we don't specialise, if they're not playing football from five years of age, five times a week, we're not going to develop players. Uh, I hear that often. You know, they've got to be playing more football. They've got to be training more. Well, we can actually look at that. The PFA did some great research recently. Uh, and the golden generation, and they compared it to a number of players, current players. And the key one down the bottom there, the golden generation typically emerged from a sampling pathway, which means they played multiple sports when they were young, whereas current players specialised early in football. That's the trend. You know, parents thinking that this, they hear about the 10,000 hours, we've got to get players into playing more football. Um, there's a time, yes, when they need to specialise, but at childhood, no. And we'll see that again. And the other area that's, uh, that was interesting for me to come out of that research was the role of the club. You know, so the current generation of players, it's a place to go to train and leave. There's no connection to the club. You know, it's not a weekly social event. So the golden generation, the club was the community. There was connections there. Parents went and socialised. When they socialised, the kids would just play. And that, that free play is really important that something's lost. Uh, so for, the, for me, there's two indicators there that we don't need to specialise early. And if you think it's, you know, well, but in Europe they do this. Well, here's some evidence from a German uh, players. So they're professional and national team players. They compared them with amateur German players. And the senior professional and national team players, they had early engagement, so yes, our kids need to play football. You can't join football at 15 or 16 and expect to go on and become a top player. So there's early engagement. But they had moderate volumes, so not, not high volumes. They had extensive gameplay when they were playing with their clubs, with their teams. And the key one for me, a lot of non-organised leisure football play during childhood and youth, and in many cases participation in other sports. So these two things here. So what they actually identified through here is multiple sports up to 12 years of age, or roughly, between 12 and 15, most of these players had at least two sports, and they didn't specialise in football until they were about 15 or 16 years of age. And all along the way, the amount of football they played away from adults, away from the team, was large, very large. And that just sort of combines there. So mostly combined moderate volumes of training. And in those training, it was, it was gameplay and lots of non-organised play. And we, we've, we've lost that. That doesn't happen now in, in Australia and, and the more... Um, Western-oriented countries. The statement at the end, even between national and 
team players and professional players. National team players specialised later and played more spontaneous football in childhood. They played other sports in adolescence. And it's only when they hit 15 or 16 that their specialisation and the number of training sessions they did a week went up. So, you know, there's, it's, there's evidence in Australia, there's evidence in Germany. I've got other evidence from France and England, same sorts of things. I think, uh, you know, we look back at the golden generation and we think, why can't we have them again? Uh, the PFA research and, and you know, it's, it's, again, consistent with other research around the world is that it's the defining or the decisive role that culture and that should be plays in sporting success. Uh, so what it, we, we talk about culture, but, but what is it? So I like this uh, graphic here. So this graphic touches on culture. So we've got the player at the centre. Around the player, you've got coaches, you've got club mates, you've got senior players, younger players. So they're in contact. The next level out from that, you've got the school, family, the teams and clubs, their peers. Everything in the air has an impact on the player. Uh, so again, there's some clear research that if a player is with their peers and their peers don't play the sport, it's unlikely they will become a top player. Uh, there's evidence around the family and the, the types of things within the family that help a player develop. And then we even go out further, you know, the football culture. Obviously, here in Europe, there's a very different football culture to compare to here or the general sports culture. Um, and one of the things that I think you'll all be uh, across is this uh, – so back in the 90, 80s and 90s, we, we were the ones that were being dragged in. We, we only came home because it was dark and we didn't have lights to stop playing. Nowadays, you have to drag kids to get outside. So that's an influence on the player. That's a youth culture. That's a national culture. Okay, and that all has an influence on the, on the player. And I like this, uh, this graphic or this mem, if you want to call it, so an old goldfish is uh, swimming along and he comes alongside two younger goldfish and says, how's the water? And the two younger ones, you know, swim off go, what a crazy old guy, what the hell is water? So we've forgotten the very thing that we exist in, the culture that, you know, we don't even think about it. Because we can't see it, because we can't affect it, we're largely ignorant of the, the impact it has on us and the development of players. So I wanted to um, touch on Iceland. You know, they were a, a, a bit of a, a trend a few years ago um, and most of the talk was around how they had every coach was qualified. Uh, so there's media articles and everyone was jumping off on the bandwagon saying, oh, we're going to get all our coaches qualified. Uh, that, look at Iceland. That's why they did well. But I dug a bit deeper and, you know, there's a number of other areas that they have done well. And I call it modern-day street football. You know, they've managed to recreate that play, but in a modern-day environment. So how have they done it? One of the key things they've done, equal access for all. So up till the age of 19, any child or any player can train up to five times a week if they want to. In, in Australia, that's unthinkable. In most European countries, that's unthinkable. Unless you're in an academy, you're one of the best, you won't be training five times a week. 
So you imagine any one of our players, if a kid really loves football, he's got access to up to five times a week. They built football houses and what, the, what used to happen is the kids would come straight from school. So 3, 3.30, the kids would come straight from school, the bus would drop them at the football houses, there'd be a coach or someone there that would just make sure they're safe and the kids would just play. They'd organise their own games. You know, if they got tired, they'd sit down. And then it would come along to their training time at 6 o'clock or, or whatever it was uh, and they'd have their training. But in the meantime, they're playing with older kids, younger kids. You know, they're interacting with the first team. So that, that's invaluable for me for free play time and the connection to the club. It's a bit like we had with, the, you know, um, a lot of our ethnic clubs back in the day where kids would just turn up and play. The other thing they did is they put mini pitches outside every school. Okay, and again, there's a, a quote there where the reporter, he was, was driving around and he saw this, obviously it's very uh, volcanic in, in Iceland and there there's artificial grass rectangle filled with kids right next to a school or right next to the low-rise buildings and the living areas, the houses. So kids, again, just playing. Uh, it's, I'm starting to see some mini pitches pop up around Victoria, which is actually fantastic to see, but you know, they're not, not being used. Major issue. And one of the important things in Iceland is that sport is done for sport's sake. Sport is done for the enjoyment of it. It's not done to become a professional player. It's not done to achieve riches and, and fame. People do it because they want to enjoy it. Sport is just done for the sake of sport. And sampling again, it came up in Iceland. So it's not uncommon to play more than one sport well into their teens, consistent with the German research. You know? And here we are pushing kids into specialise earlier and earlier. Uh, Debbie, we might stop there again. There's a, one short section left before we can open it up to some chat and discussion. Uh, any questions? Yeah, we've had a few questions posted. I'm just scrolling back up. Uh, Louis had a question that around uh, culture. Louis, did you want to expand on what your question was there? Look, I think um, Sean's hit the nail on the head. It's it's the adults running the game, and 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 even even the 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 NPL system uh, as a as an actual system encourages or discourages let's play the let's play football um, philosophy as far as I'm concerned. Um, but if you, you know, get the right person in place, then that can change as well. Um, and, uh, you know, I've been involved for a long time now and I constantly see it, but I also see the good stuff as well. But just there's just too much of it and that's why I, I, it doesn't surprise me that there are kids um, dropping out of this sport. Yeah, yeah, that, you know, I don't, at the end of the day, it comes down to the adults. You know, we can have any system in place. You can try and regulate and rule and, and change systems to try and make people behave better, but at the end of the day, that too much regulation never works. So it comes down to us. What, I, what I'd like to see is little, and, and maybe it's not the best analogy to use at the moment, but with little grass fires that are, you know, little 
pockets of good practice popping up and those fires start spreading and, and building an inferno. It's through one little fire that starts somewhere that we can get huge change. Um, so that, that's why I say change starts at the bottom. It starts with uh, you guys, the coaching. Um, and there's, there's enough, I think, you know, on this call and, and others that have similar thoughts that we, we can change the game. Yeah. Um, so just moving on from that, a few of the other ones are, are more statements, but I might get if uh, Jason, you had a, a comment about parent education as part of our community courses. Do you have any ideas of what that might look like or uh, what what sort of things you, you were, had, were thinking about when you put that up? Hey, Debbie, can you hear me? Yes. Um, first and foremost, thank you very much for putting on this presentation to, to us and to all of us around the country. It's fantastic. Um, I, I work for Football Queensland and we ran a community course last year at Palm Beach where we decided to um, just to experiment with maybe doing a small segment of parent education, you know, because our environment, we have parents from all different uh, sporting codes that are stepping up to be coaches and parents just coming in for their child's uh, social social uh, gain, should I say. And the massive, the massive achievement we got out of that was, A, we got more coaches coming through the system at the club because we, we showed them the system between having it specialized and having it fun based. So it just came down to the education and how we applied the education to the parents and just giving them an understanding of the game, especially at the grassroots football. And it was it was a really good uh, project to drive at one of the local community clubs. And yeah, the feedback was really good. I guess I guess the bottom line is it's just re-educating the system, re-educating the parents, re-educating the grassroots coaches of the importance of the fund-based model. Yeah, great point there. And uh, sometimes as adults, we forget what enjoyment really feels like. You know, we, we get caught up in serious adult world and, and forget what it is to to enjoy yourself and just relax. Sean, to your point of uh, using the word fun, you're not particularly in favour of that. You'd rather use the word enjoyment. Is that correct? So, yeah, what, what I uh, meant by that was like when you're trying to convince people that it's okay just to let the, the children play, if you use the word fun, it tends to have a bit of a negative connotation and people tend to just think of it as being useless so I tend to word, use the word enjoyment a little bit more because I find fun when you're talking to adults is a is, is not a good word to use. It just uh, it seems to spark people off in the wrong way. Yeah, it certainly does. You're not allowed to have fun, <laughs> but you can enjoy yourself. Yeah, you know, just it's just a word. Like I remember yeah. one, a thing somebody said. Um, uh, what have we all got to hold hands and sing Kumbaya? Uh, just like, uh, you know, I'm not talking about that. I'm just talking about the, the players just enjoying themselves when they play. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's an important um, point. You know, we, we've got to dig into it and 
and understand the beliefs of that are holding us back. You know, the beliefs about uh, you know we have to win or we have to specialize. Uh, and if we can change those beliefs, then I think you'll have a um, you'll end up with a much better experience for the kids. You'll keep more kids longer, and I think you'll end up with more players getting uh, going through the pathways and and eventually reaching the top. You know, um, the the one thing we don't want to do though is design the system for the 0.02 percent that'll uh, actually go on and and play at the highest level. Um, as I said at the start, we want to make it an and. You know, it's it's not just about um, catering for the grassroots and it's not just about catering for those that may go on. Um, we can create an environment where it, it caters for both. Yep. So there was just one more here, which was, again, nice insights from Luke about uh, Sean mentioned giving players um, options at training. Uh, Luke, do you want to just tell the group about your your observations on that? Yeah, sure. So uh, I've done this at, at training uh, as the warm-up, let the kids choose, and at the start they will uh, not really know what to do. Uh, but if you give them the opportunity, uh, let them know, oh, next, next training session you're picking the warm-up and make sure you have something prepared, uh, they usually – um, come up with the goods after a few weeks. It might take six or seven weeks, but then you can start to really uh, get the kids playing um, with games that they have chosen and are uh, exciting and relevant for them. It's, it's a great, great point, Luke. You know, I, I see some of the games that the kids play in the schoolyard. Um, yeah, and maybe it's just the environment. You know, they come to training and they're they're told what to do. But in the schoolyard, I ask them to explain the rules and the games. Uh, it's incredible what they come up with. It, it's absolutely fantastic. And I think if if you put, you know, you, you drag the kids outside as we have to do these days, take them off the screens, and and there'll be some complaining. Yes, and they'll be on board. I don't know what to do. But boredom's actually good. It actually stimulates creativity. And we talk about lack of creative players at this point in time. It's because everything's so structured and given to them. You know, the players don't have to think. They don't have to use their imagination as kids. Uh, they, these things are missing because of our society at the moment. But they do exist in, in small pockets. Like I said, the, the lunchtime at school, they, they are fantastic creating games. And we just got to give them that opportunity. And like you said, at, at first they'll go, hang on, it'll take them a few weeks to get onto it. Um, but sometimes they can come out with some games that I could never come up with a million years and they're much better than the ones that I've designed. So it's a great point. Great. Thanks for those questions. Keep them coming as uh, Sean continues on with the last section of his presentation. So we, it's, it's probably, um, you know, good timing. Somebody mentioned about the, the parents. Um, so, again, we'll start off with a, a nice little video. Jill, I'm a recovering soccer mom. Hi, Hi Jill. Jill. 
ever since Bailey was five, I've been driving her to early morning practices, after school games, weekend tournaments, summer camps, indoor winter league, Sprottom league. Sprottom? Spring slash autumn. I lived in my van, never saw my husband, but it was okay because my sacrifice was making Bailey a better player. But we encourage our kids to play sports so they become better people. Tell that to the little brats, huh, who play other sports during the rest of the year and then steal all the spots on the soccer team. Perhaps those kids are better athletes because they play other sports? That makes no sense. Hmm? Bailey is out there every day kicking the ball until her feet are numb. You say that like it's a good thing. And then one day out of nowhere, Bailey tells me that she doesn't want to play soccer anymore. She can't even look at a soccer ball after all the years I put in. How old is Bailey now? Going on seven. Why? When a child plays only one sport, sometimes they have a higher risk of suffering repetitive injuries. They can burn out and they get turned off sports altogether. I found myself. At five o'clock in the morning the other day, sitting in the van, and I realized I'm not a soccer mom anymore. Encourage Bailey to try different sports. So I shouldn't have sold the van. Why would anyone else like to share? Hi, I'm Todd. Hi, Hi Todd. Todd. I bet the farm on my son playing in the NBA. Literally, I took out a second mortgage on the family farm to pay for basketball camps. Things were looking great for a while. Justin made varsity in middle school, but then... Did he get injured? Worse. Stop growing. It's five, five. Genetics is a cruel mistress. I can't even look my own son in the eye now, and it's not because he's so darn little. Is it because you're going to lose the farm? No. Because he's playing on the JV team. But is he having fun? I never asked. Maybe you should, Todd. We're with you, Todd. As a parent, you just want to see your child succeed. Are Daniel going to play in the NHL? Went to all the day camps, straight into night camp, hockey school, hockey hockey. Hockey hockey? Twice the hockey and no school. We thought he was the next Wayne Gretzky. <laughs> he wasn't even the next Brent Gretzky. Hasn't been on skates in 15 years. Early sports specialization can actually hurt a child's overall athletic development. And by encouraging their son to only play hockey, they may have actually hurt his chances for succeeding. But what is Daniel doing now? David doesn't like to speak about it. It might help to share. He's a... My son is an astronaut. I still have all his hockey gear. He still keeps his skates sharpened. He's still draft eligible. He's 34 years old. Gordy, how play until he's 50? You need to get over it. I know. Admitting it is the first step. How about you? Would you like to share? I'm Wade. I'm only here because my son made me. And why is that? He says I'm trying to live vicariously through him. Is that true? Right. Um, well, let's all remember why we encourage our kids to play sports. To win. To be a star. Uh, to get rich. We encourage our kids to play sports so they can have fun <laughs> and, and socialize and learn to be part of a team. Is forcing our child to play only one sport and then putting a whole lot of pressure on them to succeed a really healthy thing to do? No. 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 Good. Repeat after me. Kids who play more than one sport get more out of sports. Kids who play more than one sport get more out of sports. <laughs> Many of the same messages put through in uh, what I thought was quite a quite a funny way. So often, you know, we we, we talk about it's it's the parents. Um, you know, we're we're doing everything we can. So. 
but what, what is your role as a coach and, and what's the club role? So one of the things I'd encourage you to do and, and spread to fellow coaches is to go through this process. So set the vision, shape the environment, build relationships and clarity and consistency of communication. Uh, so example for setting the vision, every year of, of coaching grassroots, I would send out an email or a message to the parents about my approach. Right? Kids turn up to training, they're going to get equal game time. Every kid is, is I want women to enjoy. If they're not enjoying it, I want them to come and speak to me or the parent to come speak to me. So I'd set out my philosophy, communicate that vision. Then the environment, uh, obviously on game day, we've got to back up the vision, bring it to life. Building relationships with your parents is really important. Strong relationships, you can influence them more. And then consistency and clarity of that communication. I think if you can uh, work with your group of parents, you know, I ended up having no problems. And when new players came in, you know, had the odd player that would they'd move out and try other sports, which is fine. But when new parents came in, they, they became part of that culture and they bought into it. So we had a little bubble around that team. Um, you know, it's, uh, I'm going through the same process at the MPL club now. Uh, second year and a number of the parents are back. Um, well, same sorts of parents, same sorts of players. Uh, we, we're starting to build that culture again. Uh, but it takes time. But I think that's a, a really important role of the coach is to influence the parents rather than leave it up to, like we said, Football Queensland or FFA to educate the parents. Start the process with your parents. There is, there are obviously roles to play at, at all levels, um, and one of the important ones, the club roles, to go through a similar thing. So I just want to share an example of Gisborne Soccer Club, which is a small club just in the outskirts of of Melbourne. Uh, they sat down as a committee and thought, what sort of club do we want to have? What sort of experience do we want to provide to our players? And they came to an agreement that they wanted to go down this sort of route of making sure all the kids. Uh, enjoyed their football, that everyone was developed, everyone had an opportunity, uh, the kids had a voice in it. And so then they set their, the, uh, I suppose, their processes around that and they spoke to coaches and then they hired coaches who fit into that philosophy. Um, and they actually had one coach who, no, I don't want to do that, I'm going to play the best kids because we've got to win the games. Uh, and they actually said to that coach halfway through the season, after they spoke to him and, and couldn't convince him, thanks very much, you don't fit our club. So thanks very much for that. Please move on. I think it was the first time they actually asked the coach to move on. Uh, so that, that as a committee, as a club, they set the vision, they shaped the environment, they built relationships, and if someone was going to challenge that or, or didn't fit into that or was you know, going to threaten that environment, then they moved them on. And there was consistency and clarity in the communication. Um, so that, that was a great little example. And I, I know there's some great clubs and, and great coaches out there. It's about you know, spreading those fires even, even further. I think I've, I've touched on this. Um, for me, the key message for parents is to give unstructured time. You don't need to drive your kids to piano, to football, to swimming, uh, you know, five nights a week after school, they're at school all day, then they're in structured activities all night. Um, you know, let them get on with it. Let them get bored. 
and try and find something interesting to do. Again, as I said, if you watch kids play, particularly in a group outside, uh, they'll organise themselves into some fantastic games, uh, even if that's playing pretend or, or whatever, as it says there. Um, so for me, that's the big thing we've got to give to parents. And, and I'm, I'm just as guilty, you know. I, I try not to schedule my two boys' time um, too much. But, and getting them off screens is another important point. So just uh, I call it breaking the machine because it, it is a machine. And, and we talk about, you know, uh, production line. Uh, players are not produced. They emerge out of an environment. So you remember that circle of the culture, all the influences. So the water that we actually swim in, that has an influence. Um, so breaking the machine, some of the things. Let's just accept that children play sport for more than just trying to become a professional. You know, Not every kid wants to be pushed on. They play it because they love it, and we should encourage that. It's that love of the game that will hold them through the difficult training sessions to come later in life. Uh, there was an article not too long ago about Bresciano giving up. He said he was driving to training in Qatar and realised, I don't enjoy this anymore. So he quit. Right? So he, uh, another professional, no enjoyment, that was his words, um, I'm not going to play anymore. So it doesn't matter what level. So understand that sport is a vehicle for social good. Okay? And sport in itself is is not inherently good or bad. It, it's the lessons or the values that the coach brings. Sport can just as you know much be a, a vehicle for bad, teaching bad things. Um, so it does come down to the coach. At the end of the day, that the professionals that we see on on TV is the end of a long, long, hard journey, and it's for a tiny minority of players. Right? So we again, I use that and word. It's not either or. Uh, we can create environments where we can cater for both of those types of uh, players and, and players with those motivations. Some kids will want to go and that's what, how they play or what they want to play, but we can encourage both of them. Uh, and just encourage them to collaborate and work hard for each other. Um, I think that's an important point. And I've, I've stolen this one um, from a good friend, Mark O'Sullivan. Uh, he's an Irishman. He used to be a DJ. Um, but he's a very intelligent man in terms of grassroots football, now works at AIK Stockholm, um, and he used this quote, so KPI number one for grassroots coach is to inspire them to play independently of you. So if we had even 50 or 60% of our coaches that could achieve that, kids going out and, and just playing, I tell you what, we'd go through the roof in terms of our national teams. It would make a huge difference. And as I've said all along, change starts with you. And I, and I think it's an apt uh, graphic with the fish understanding the water that we, that we swim in or that we live in um, and understanding the impact that it can have and that we've got to change the culture. Thank you. Awesome. Thanks, Sean. Um, I'm sure you'll all agree there's some real thought-provoking ideas presented there and and now we all play our part in taking it back and, and trying to be the instigators of change in this space. Um, Sean, you might just need to work on the uh, grass fires analogy. I think that might, <laughs> might hit a few nerves in some areas of the country at the moment. 
thank you, Sean, for a very insightful presentation on uh, rethinking grassroots football and hopefully we, we get some football being played this season and we can start to implement some of your ideas.